Listening to Barbershop Sports Talk with me, our host, Daryl Lane, as always. Whether you're listening through the Columbia SC Radio Station's app, LM Radio Network, or SoundCloud, I want to thank you for making us part of your day. That intro song you just heard was from my man's Eric Seminara. Really appreciate Eric doing, you know, the song for us. We're going to keep playing it. We're going to play it again at the top of the second hour, so stay tuned for that. Great show today, like always. Not to brag or anything. What's up with Jim Mora and Josh Rosen? Former Tennessee Volunteers basketball player Howard Wood comes on the show. Can't wait for Howard to come on. Really appreciate him making time for us today. And what I make of Conor McGregor trashing, you know, the the, the pre-fight for UFC. Miss Conor, he likes to cause a ruckus. But first, uh... Saturday? No, Monday, Monday. Villanova, Michigan. And while watching that game, I was just taken back. Villanova is amazing. They dominated the NCAA tournament. They beat every team by double digits or more. Every team. Their closest game was a 71-59 win over Texas Tech in the Elite Eight. They're, they demolished, demolished Kansas, 95-79. They spanked Michigan in the national final, 79-62. Now, let, let's look at some stats here. Because Villanova, truly, they are one of the greatest offensive teams I've ever seen. They led college basketball in points, scoring 87.1 per game. They're, they were fifth in shooting, shooting around 50%. They were 20th from the free throw line, shooting 40%. 19th in assists. Fourth best turnover differential. And 19th in free throw shooting. Now, why is this so astonishing? Why would this be so amazing? There are 351 men's Division I basketball teams in the United States of America. And in all those offensive stats, 
Villanova was no lower than 20th. Think of how elite that is. Not, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's truly impressive. It's truly impressive. And you know what those stats say? Here's what they say. Top 20 in assists, the ball moves. It doesn't stick. Top 5 in field goal percentage shooting. You take efficient shots. You take high percentage shots. Top 20 in three-point shot. In three-point shooting. Top 20 in three-point shooting. You get open threes and you hit them at a high clip. You have guys that can shoot. Top 5 in turnover differential. They don't turn the ball over. Don't give you extra possessions. Top 20 in free throw shooting. They make the most of their opportunity when they're fouled. Quite simply, this team has no offensive weakness. Jay Williams, former Duke basketball player who now now works for ESPN, said that this Villanova team is the Golden State Warriors of college basketball. He said they are the Golden State Warriors of college basketball. Think about how much of a great remark that is about their ball movement, about their unselfishness, about their tempo. And Michael Swain, assistant sports editor for the Kansian, I, I was texting him, and I, and I asked him, because he was covering the game, and I asked him, how, how impressive was Villanova? Because Villanova lit, lit up Kansas. They took him to the woodshed. They went on a 22-3 run, and the game was just got so out of hand early. And they just kept controlling the game and pounded Kansas. And this is what he said to me. They are the best college offense I have ever seen. The decision-making is equivalent to that of an NBA team. They make the extra pass without thought and turn good shots into great shots. They have legitimate stretch fives that take advantage of of defensive big men helping in the lane. They are just flat-out incredible. Beating every team in the NCAA tournament, a tournament that is geared for parody, for Cinderella stories, for the not the best team to win, that truly shows how amazing Villanova is. All throughout the tournament, and I will keep saying this, I saw horrendous basketball offensively. That hurt my eyes. It looked like I was playing out there. <laughs> it looked like I was playing out there. I saw teams that couldn't run a pick and roll. I saw teams that would drive the ball up the floor and just throw it out of bounds. I saw teams that would go go through stretches, long stretches, seven, eight-minute stretches where they couldn't get a shot off. I saw teams where the best offensive play, their best offensive play, their most efficient offensive play, was a brick by the guard and a putback rebound by the center. Players in college, I saw players in college basketball, they just can't shoot. And when the big men's roll into the rim after pick and roll, they won't throw it to the big man. So, I saw a lot of bad basketball. And people can say it was a great defense. I remember I was watching the Michigan Loyola Chicago game, and I was like, oh my God. It went through, it was just like, this is just bad basketball. And then you see Villanova playing, and just like, wow. When you see Villanova play, you see they can score off a pick and roll. The ball moves. There's so much court spacing. 
They do catch and shoots. They're doing off the ball picks, running to get open. Lots of motion, lots of movement. They pass up good shots for great shots. If the shot that they want isn't there, they kick it out and reset. And they're patient. Jay Wright has built the perfect roster. The per- and it's the perfect way to build a roster because you have you have Coach K who does all the one and dones. Then you have, like, let's say Lyle Chicago, who has guys that are just college basketball players. They're just college players. Jay Wright has recruited a bunch of players that might not be the one and done stars like in Kentucky. But they're sure as heck not just college bad regular college basketball players like the ones at Loyola. They all lots of those guys on the roster, they will get drafted by an NBA team. They will play in the NBA. They will be a rotation player in the NBA, maybe a starter, a role player. And if not, they will play overseas and play basketball somewhere. There are lots of guys on that roster in Villanova that will be playing professional basketball somewhere. I don't know where, but they will be playing professional basketball. Jalen Brunson, Mikel Bridges, Dante DiVincenzo, Amari Spellman. This Villanova team is special. Special. And I wish, and I want, I want them all to come back. I want them all to come back. Because that would be great for college basketball. If they all came back and tried to win three championships out of four years, I mean, that would give me chills. That'd be crazy. How could you not root for a team like that? But anyway, there are like, there are these things, right? That you just don't do in society. And it's funny because I was I was actually talking to my mom about this uh, last week when I was home. Yeah, last week, and you know she was mad. She was mad at me because it was about the, the the Uber driver, and we were talking about we were talking about tips and stuff, right? And we've had this conversation before. And if if I don't give it, you know, if I don't give an Uber driver, to basically the thing is I look jive, which is true. Which is why I gave my last Uber driver a tip. Because he did a good job. Shout out to that guy. But there are just certain things you do. And you all know that there are just certain things that, you know, it's just apropos. It's a social norm. You know, th- things you do, whether it's right or wrong. It's just things you're expected to do. You feel weird not doing it. When you go to a restaurant, you leave a tip. You know, you don't talk behind your best friend's back. If a if a job calls and they're asking for a reference for somebody, you don't blast them. When you see someone, you know, you say hi. If a family member, immediate family member comes to you, brother, sister, mom, dad, uh, like that, daughter son they come up to you and you know they ask they they need some help you generally try to help them you don't you don't just not do those type of things because when you're the when you're the person who doesn't tip who blasts the person that had you as a reference that didn't help your brother who didn't say hi when somebody you knew for 20 years waved at you who talks behind his best friend's back the truth the, the truth is there is something wrong 
And there's something we should look at. And we should look at you. If somebody, and because I, I worked at a restaurant, Giancarlo's, over the summer. And, you know, I actually later time, everybody gives you tips, like, right? In this um, one lady, uh, Brooke, she, she was talking about how she didn't get tips and stuff. She's like, that's the awful, the worst thing in the world when you don't get tips, right? Because dishwashers, they don't get paid. I mean, not dishwashers, uh, waiters and waitresses don't get paid absurd amount of money. They, they don't get paid a lot of money. So the tips really, you know, make up for a lot of that economically. So if you're at a restaurant, you sit down, and you don't give someone a tip, the waiter or waitress a tip, there is either one thing, well, there's two things. Either you are a jive mofo, and you are cheap. Cheap, cheap, cheap. Or you are the waiter or waitress are a jerk, and you probably spit in the person's food. Because you, when you, when somebody tells you they didn't pay a tip, you look at them strange. But then if they tell you, you know, the waiter or waitress spitting your food, you're like, it's okay. But when those things happen, it gives us a little cause to pause because they're just things you're just expected to do. Like when you're a coach and, you know, you have your star quarterback coming up for the draft. And instead of giving him a great review... You know, you, you tell them another quarterback's better. Like Jim Mora did to Josh Rosen. It gives you a cause to pause. Jim Mora made two damning statements about his former quarterback, Josh Rosen, from UCLA. Jim Mora said he would pick Sam Darnold over Josh Rosen. And he said, said Josh Rosen needs to be intellectually challenged because he gets bored easily. Now, this is the rule. Like I said, social norms. You go to the grave for that person, for your coach. You go to the grave. You go to the grave with them. If you know stuff, you, just, you, you don't say it till you're on your deathbed and they're long, dumb playing. You over-exaggerate for them. You speak nothing but positivity. You, you don't blast them. You don't say stuff like that that could hurt their draft stock. And I remember uh, in high school, my, my wrestling coach and the athletic director, they were talking. Talking about a kid on our team that was really, really good, three-time state champion, Kellen Devlin, goes to NC State. And they were talking about him. And, and what they were saying was, you know, if Division One, Division Two, because we were, he was in Division Two, and it was a lot weaker than Division One. they were talking about he might not be a state champion like it was back in the day when all the divisions were merged and was that much tougher. So basically they were saying I was winning a watered-down league. And that's what the athletic director was talking about. And then you know my wrestling coach said to the athletic director when they were talking? He was like, and I remember this, he was like, you know, that's not my job to worry about it. It's my job to make our kids and help our kids be the best they can possibly be. That type of stuff doesn't matter. You always focus on your guy. You don't focus on other people. The fact that John, Jim Mora didn't do that for Rosen is a real concern about him. What type of person is he? Because if his coach does that to him, I want to know what type of kid he is. Because let's remember what people were saying about Josh Rosen. Grew up in affluence. You know, can be a bit of a jerk. Rubs people the wrong way. Not a really relatable guy. Thinks he's better than everybody. 
Basically, he's a cocky jerk that thinks he's better than he is, and he's too cool for school. So now scouts will ask, Jim, you coached Josh Rosen for three years. You recruited him. Sam Darnold plays for USC. That's right across the corner. Those are crosstown rivals. So you played Sam Darnold. You've probably seen Sam Darnold on tape a lot. And you you think? And it's not the fact that you think it. That you're willing to say it? Should we? We should look at Josh Rosen differently. Then, that, then you know what else a scout might ask? Why does Josh Rosen need to be intellectually challenged? Because every every quarterback wants to be intellectually challenged. Everybody wants to be intellectually challenged. You don't want somebody to talk to you like you're a dummy. That's just the norm. I, I don't. I don't know anybody, you know, that, that's, that that goes for everybody, just not Josh. I mean, nobody wants to be talking to a dummy. So why does he need to be intellectually challenged? If something he doesn't think is important, he's just going to sleep in the meeting? Is that what he means? Like I said, Mora would know Josh Rosen best. He recruited him. He coached him for three years. He knows his personality. He knows his skill set. He knows his strengths. He knows his weaknesses. No matter how you slice it, Comparing Josh Rosen directly to Sam Darnold, both California QBs, played for rival schools, USC, UCLA, and you're saying you'd rather take Sam Darnold over Josh Rosen? That's not a good look. It's not a good look. Jim Moore hurt Josh Rosen in many ways with those comments, many ways. And Jim, Jim Moore knows what he did. I don't believe because Jim Moore tried to backtrack and say, you know, I, I just think Sam Darnold fits with the better blue-collar city, which might be true. But you always go for your guy. So Jim Moore, he wasn't misquoted. It would have been easier for him to say, I'll go with my quarterback. I've never coached Sam Darnold. That would have been really easy for him to say. It would have been easy for him to say, Josh Rosen's acumen is really, really good. Two things we can take from this. Josh Rosen, quite possibly, is a jerk and a bit of a turnoff. And that's what I have to go by right now. Because I, Or, Jim Moore is a jive dude that sold out his quarterback. But the big problem for Josh Rosen is nobody cares about Jim Mora. <laughs> Jim Mora's on TV now. He got fired. Josh Rosen, this is a job interview. Coach just exposed you. Now coming up next on Barbershop Sports Talk, I'm going to have Howard Wood, former Tennessee Volunteers basketball player, coming up right up next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Barbershop Sports Talk. We're going to have Howard Wood come up in just a couple of minutes. But first, I want to talk about this Conor McGregor deal. 
with, with Dana White. Conor McGregor just is arrested now, actually. And then I think he, he boasted bail. But uh, the story is, I guess he was mad because there's he got his world title stripped because, you know, he fought Floyd Mayweather. And uh, he, after he fought Floyd Mayweather, you know, he wasn't fighting. So Dana White stripped his title. And it, he had some fight with this guy named Khabib, who's, I guess he gave the title to. So, so now Connor comes in with his boys in the Barclays Center for the UFC free fight and they just like tear up the place and they start throwing trash cans and stuff and I think they cut up some of the fighters and sort of messed up Dana White's showcase. But this is all a manifestation of Dana White because this is what Dana White did. He controls everything in UFC. You know, he's the owner. He, he controls the brand and he controls when a fighter fights, who they're going to fight, you know, the timing, you know, all those details, Dana White controls it. And the reason why Dana White did it, because Dana White used to be in boxing circles, and he saw a lot of stuff that was going on with boxing, and he saw how, you know, you can sort of make your own decisions in boxing. A guy like Floyd Mayweather goes eight years without fighting a Manny Pacquiao, and fans get mad. Dana White, that's why Dana White went to UFC, so he could control everything and make him the face instead of necessarily making, you know, certain box, certain M MMA fighters the face. But where he messed up, because it was working well for him in the UFC brand is, once he allowed Conor McGregor to do something so outlandish like fight Floyd Mayweather and make the amount of money that he did, there was no way he was ever going to control him again. That's why Conor wasn't fighting. He doesn't have to. You're making me like $150 million off of it. Conor McGregor's set for life. So Conor will fight when he wants to fight, who he wants to fight, whenever he wants to fight. Kind of like how Floyd Mayweather does. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how similar those two guys are? You know, even though they come from two different backgrounds. I mean, they're both arrogant. Both can be a little ignorant. They're both profane, you know, immature, cocky. And aggressive people. I mean, because people, people talk about Floyd and his domestic violence allegations. I'm not saying it's okay, but Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor basically did thuggery and came up and assaulted a bunch of people. That's what Conor McGregor was doing. So, th these guys are very similar. And like Floyd, Conor's really looking at the game and realizing, do I want to keep getting punched in the face? Do I want arm bars? Do I want all that stuff? I just want to hype myself up and it's a LeVar Ball method Connor's on TV he stays relevant now people are talking about him if he doesn't go in jail he's probably going to make money publicity all this stuff but Dana White messed up by letting him go Connor go outside of his lines because remember Connor's not an easy person to control like I said he fought his way out of the ghetto in Dublin Ireland was dirt poor and became a famous UFC fighter in America so he's you know cocky arrogant he has a little chip, bit of a chip on his shoulder and he's like, he's like he said, he's like he said, I bounce heads out the canvas. He does that for a living. He submits people for a living. He punches them in the face, chokes them out, and rips their arms off. So yeah, he's a bit of an aggressive guy, and he's going to do aggressive things. But now we got Howard Wood with us, former Tennessee Volunteers basketball player today. How you doing, Howard? I'm doing well. Um, I'm doing great. So you just went back to Tennessee recently because you were getting honored. Just explain a little bit about what that was for. Uh, yeah, first of all, um, yeah, it was for uh, representing the University of Tennessee. 
Asia, Tennessee, but actually I was in St. Louis, Missouri for the uh, Southeastern Conference uh, tournament. And uh, every year they have each team dominates uh, or designates one of their former players as, as a legend. And, um, and you go down to wherever the Southeastern Conference uh, tournament is, and um, they honor you at halftime of your team's first game. And then um, all the, uh, I believe it was 19 honorees are honored in the uh, halftime of the semifinals. So what was that experience like? Fantastic. Um, very humbling. You know, um, you know, one never thinks he did or she did as much as, you know, other people might think they did in their sports. So, you know, and I was there with some guys that were, you know, really, really legendary. You know, as, um, you know, the first African-American to play in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, Mr. Dillard was there uh, being honest. So to be in the presence of those people and uh, having my daughter there um, along with another friend, you know, just made a really, really special, special six days. Now, recently, uh, Michigan basketball coach uh, John Beeline, he, he, was, he was talking about the, the Fab Five and he would like for them to all get together and be honored, you know. Not necessarily how you were honored, but, you know, you come in at halftime, you know, you do the yada, 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 you know, you do the whole whole tongue-in-cheek thing. Do you think that the Fab Five will ever get honored at Michigan? You know, I don't know. Um, I'm, you know, they, they, they really uh, help put Michigan on the map basketball-wise. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I guess they do deserve some type of honor. I mean, they, they, they were iconic back in the day. You know, everybody was talking like them, tried to dress like them, you know, wear... Uh, shoes like them and everything, so you know it might it might be a good thing. You know, they brought a lot of recognition to the university, and also I mean they were they were they were great. They were a great team. Now you're from upstate New York in Long Island. Just explain what the basketball culture is there, and just in New York in general, the New York City area. Well, I mean you know I, I don't do much around New York City area, but that's you know always been the mecca of basketball. Although you know you get California uh, places. You know, like L.A., Chicago, uh, Indiana, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing it up, too. You know, but basketball has always, you know, my eyes been the mecca. You know, out here in Long Island, I mean, you know, we were state champs my senior year, so, you know, we have a big basketball culture where we are. You know, it's slacked a little bit in the last few years, but, you know, coaching staff and, and players are, you know, working kind of hard to get it back, you know, because back in the day, Tuesdays and Friday nights, you know, uh, if these hands was home, you know, that was the big place to be in East Hampton, so we're trying to bring that back. So, when you're, when you're in high school, you lead your team to a state state championship in 1977, I believe. You know, best player on the team. Then you go to Tennessee. Correct. And then you're playing with, you know, other guys that are really good, like a Gary Carter, Adele Ellis, a Reggie Johnson. What was that experience like not being the guy on a team? You know, I mean, you know, be, being the guy was, you know, wasn't that big of a deal to me. It just happened to be that, you know, that 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 it it it, it fell on me, you know, but I had other guys on the team, you know, that went division 1 basketball too that could have easily been uh you know that person. I think maybe because I was the senior on the team, um it kind of focused on me a little bit. But yeah, you know, going to uh, you know to a to a college of, of the magnitude of Tennessee, you know, and then where everybody is all state at least, you know, if not all American, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't difficult. You 
know what I mean? I, I, I was country, and um, I played in a few AAU things and seen how, uh, you know, how, how guys from other, other parts of the country played. And, um, you know, it was, it was a fun transition. The, the toughest part was, you know, the physical part of, you know, you know learning to play 40 minutes, um, you know, having to lose a lot of weight because I was heavy going in. Um, that was the hardest part, but as far as the competition, it, it wasn't it wasn't too too difficult. You mentioned you played a little bit of AAU. Uh, you said East Hampton. It used to be sort of you know Tuesdays and and Fridays. Those those were the nights where everybody played. There was a lot of hoopla about it. When did you realize when you were playing basketball that you you were pretty good and you had a chance to possibly play Division One college basketball? So, what, what did you make of the Tennessee Volunteers' season this year? Uh, I call it uh, sweet and sour. You know, um, being tied during the regular season for the SEC championship, um, you know, was, was fantastic. Yeah, I think that might have been the first time in a while. But then losing to Kentucky um, in the SEC finals, you know, was tough. You know, having beat them twice all year, they were finally come. Now, what do you make of Li- uh, Loyola Chicago? Because they had this improbable run, and they, you know, they, they sort of made the bracket fall apart a little bit and just ended up in the Final Four. What did you make of their team? I mean, you know, they, they were tough. You know, when they first, people, you know, like I say, people hear about the Dukes and all that. They know the players. You know, I, I don't know a lot of college players' names, but I know I did not know. I didn't even know that college existed, to be honest with you. Never heard of it. Um, and then you watch him play, and... Um, just tell that those guys have been together for a while. Um, you know, they, they were mature ball players and they were confident. And I mean, you know, they didn't care who they were against. You know, they weren't intimidated by big name teams. And, and, and that's what's important. It was so good, I thought, for, for college basketball. You 
you know, that let you know guys know that you don't have to go to a Kentucky, Duke, Villanova, Michigan, you know, um, Tennessee, you know, to to, to 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 have a run at it. You know, you get the right group of guys, you know, the right program with the right coaching staff, and you know, as these guys uh, demonstrated along with the nuns, you know, you can go a long way and do great things. Now the team that won it all this year, Villanova, they. They're one of the best teams I've first ever seen, even though I haven't lived that long. But what did, what did you make of Villanova and just their offense and, and the way they spread the court? You know, I mean, I, I thought the offense was great. You know, that young kid, the, the, whatever, DiFacenzo, I believe his name is, you know, had a great game. But their defense, you know, impresses me, you know, all year. You know, as a coach, you know, what you teach, you know, you try to teach a kid to keep the, the, the offensive player in front of you, and they do a good job of that. They do a great job of keeping, you know, their man, the man with the ball in front of them, and they do a good job of, of helping recover. And uh, you can see, I mean, they, they completely shut uh, Wagner down the second half. You know, he had, what, 13, 15, something like that. The first half completely shut him down. And then um, I figured that might be Bridges, you know, started, you know, hitting the threes and, you know, shooting his confidence. You know, once you, you get feel a couple, I mean, the, the young kid, the freshman, you know, I mean, he was pulling threes from – behind the arc with guys in his face, you know, but, you know, he made some early, got confident, and, um, you know, that was the game. How great do you think it would be for college basketball if you had a, a Mikel Bridges, a Jalen Brunson, a, a DiVincenzo, if you had them all stay and try to repeat and become one of the, you know, win three titles in three out of four years, that's pretty special. How great oh, do you man, think that would be for the game? I think one of the last teams that I could kind of remember doing that is when Yaquim Noah played the Florida. I mean, I believe after they won the first one, a lot of those guys, or some of those guys could have gone, and they stayed to repeat. You know, I mean, that's 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 huge. You know, I can't imagine uh, winning one. You know, but then again, you know, you stay around and become one of the few that, you know, can go back to back. I mean, that's that's huge. You know, that's something, you know, nobody will ever take away. You know, just like, you know, the, was it Loyola Chicago beating the number one ranking? I mean, that, you know, regardless of None of those guys ever play another second of basketball. You know, they're in the history books from doing something great. You know, so, I mean, I, 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 but, and like I said, you know, those guys stuck around, um, almost got there, but they didn't. But I think to win one, you know, the furthest I got was the Sweet 16s. And I mean, and that was, you know, tremendous. I can't imagine getting to the finals, winning it, and then coming back and going through the whole process again another year and, and to win it again. I mean, you know, you know, that, that's fantastic. That, that's a, a huge accomplishment. I, I would love to have had that chance. Now, Villanova, they've sort of done it to me a little bit differently than like how uh, Coach Calipari is doing it at Kentucky or even how like a Loyola Chicago is. Because to me, they're sort of in the middle because they have – they're not getting, you know, these top echelon recruits like Kentucky does, but they're not right. getting these guys that are just – you've never heard of at Loyola Chicago. They're, they're getting – I would say your guys that are pretty good and they'll, they'll probably never be a star in the NBA or even make the NBA, but they'll probably play professional basketball somewhere or be a rotation player in the NBA. They're all, they're all, they're NBA players, but they're not star NBA players. H how important do you think that is to have a team like that? You know, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I think it's great. It, it just shows, that's, that shows, you know, I believe how good of a coach, not taking anything away from the other team, you know, but how, how good of a coach Coach Wright is. You know, I mean, he keeps those players. Now you got to remember that's two titles in three years for him. 
you know, and, and, and those guys evidently want to stay. They like being around. They like what he does on and off the court. You know, you haven't heard any scandals. I hope I don't jinx any scandals really coming from them. You know, it seems to be clean. Um, seems like they do it the right way. And, uh, I mean, I, I think he just does a fantastic job there. And, like, you're right, those guys don't, don't jump after, you know, one year ago. You know, I mean, like, it's, you know, those guys, you know, seem, seem to stick around. Some of them will, of course, they will. I mean, with that talent, you know, how could you not? But, you know, those guys, those guys stay there. They, they hone their skills. And when they do leave, they seem to be prepared. And then, again, look, look, if you go go back to college, um, you know, we talked about the Fab Five. Did they, they never won a title, did they? No. You know, and those guys left early. So just because you have all this talent doesn't necessarily mean um, that you're going to win. You know, you look in the NBA, you know, you know, Golden State's one of the few teams that you see that win with five superstars, but they're all humble superstars. They all play for each other and with, you know, one another. So, you know, they're different. But in general, you don't usually see teams with all these superstars uh, are winning. You know, you got to have the guys that, that aren't afraid, you know, to, to get dirty. You know, that do the intangible, that don't matter if their name's not in the, in the, in the, in the paper. Uh, when they're talking about how dominant this team is or something like that. You know, that's what you need to win. Those are the guys that, that, that bring it every night um, and do the little things that make it necessary uh, uh, for teams to win. How hard is, do you think, though, for, like, Kentucky or even now Duke? Because Duke, they're going to get the, the top three basketball recruits in the country next year, and I assume they're all going to be one and done. How hard is it to have that much talent in a short amount of time, you have to build a level of chemistry and cohesiveness and get this team ready to play. You know, you're, you're funny. You sound like an a, a old head coach, man. Uh, but, but you know, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. You know, uh, why is Kentucky and those guys so good at the end? Because, you know, they're finally coming together. You know, you get these guys together in August, September, and you start to work them together. You know, and that takes months. You know, to learn, you know, another player's habits, you know, where or how he likes to fall, what he likes to do after certain plays. You know, that takes time. And that's why those teams, you know, I don't even think they peaked. I think if you gave, you know, those teams like Kentucky another month, they, they'd be so much better still. But that also shows you how good these coaches are. You know, to take three, four new guys every year and incorporate them, not on the team only, but as important players on the team, you know, game-winning players on your team. They have them function as a group in you know three, four, five months. I mean that that's that that says a lot. That says a lot. Now, what would your solution be to get kids to stay in college longer and you know not leave after one year? You know, it's 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 it's, it's, it's hard to, to 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 fight against you know the economics of the game. You know, how am I going to tell a kid that might not be doing you know the best that economically, mom, dad might be you know working whatever it is. I'm not going to tell him, you know, hey, man, don't breathe, stick around. When he knows that in one year, two years of his career, you know, his family could be set for life. You know, that's that's hard to convince. You know, the guys that I would, would try to convince, the guys that, you know, are the lower echelon of those groups that want to go in, you know, that are just hell-bent on going in just because, and, and they're not ready. And they are for sure, after their two or three, I forget how many year contracts they usually sign, will be done. You know, he'll have some money and he can probably go overseas, but, it, it, you know, uh, so many times that does not happen, you know, with young players. So, 
know, I, it, it, I don't know what I would tell them down. It'd be so hard, so hard to fight against that money like that. When you're talking about millions of dollars as a 19 year old, you know, that that's, uh, you know, there's everything that comes along with it. Fame, you know, that the fortunes come, you know, the fame, you know, you know, when I, when I remember playing with guys, you know, that was first round pick, you know, they paid for less than the, the lower pick guys did. Everybody wanted to, you know, take care of the, of the number one pick or, or, or the name player. So, but a lot to go with that, um, uh, and it'd be awfully hard to convince a kid that that's that's pretty sure that he can make it not to go. A solution some people have said is like if you pay if you play play players, let's say the NCAA pays players, that they'll they'll be more inclined to stay because. They'll have money and they don't need to go if they're in a tough financial situation with their family or whatever. They won't need to go to the NBA. Do you think that could potentially work if there was some way to pay players that they would stay? You know, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I don't know if, if, if they were paying the it would be enough for them to make to make them stay. But I do believe that these players in all these, you know, especially big-time sports, why wouldn't you play an Alabama football player, for an example? The guy that brings in millions and millions and millions of dollars to his university, you know, all of it. Yeah, I understand they get a free education. I understand that. But you know, you know, other students—they're allowed to work. Um, they're allowed to make a living outside. You know, athletes don't have time. You know, between school and practice, you know, practice is just the two hours a day that you go in the gym and work out. There's a lot more to to being a scholarship athlete or Division One uh, athlete than just you know, like say, going to school and going to your two-hour practice every day. There's a lot more to it than that. You know, so um, you know, I don't know. That. I don't know what I would would say to him to try to convince him to stay. Now, you you play in college for four years. You get drafted. In the, you're the fourth pick in the second round of the NBA draft, and you go to the NBA, and you only play like 40 games. How, how hard was it for when you go to the NBA, and you're like from college competition to now you're playing in the league in the NBA? Uh, you know, the tough part was you know you know now every day. Playing against grown men, you know, men that have been in the league 18 years, that you know, body, mind, physically, a whole, all the tricks of the trade. You know, that was that was the tough part. Um, but once once you get on the court, you kind of forget about where you are and you just just try to play. You know, my 40 games, I was out two months. I had an eye injury, so I missed two months of that season. Um, so I didn't get the experience that I would have liked to. But um, yeah, that was the tough part. You know, then the, of course the travel then, because you know now all the teams have charters. Back then, everybody flew commercial. So if you played tonight and you had a back-to-back, you were obligated to catch the first plane out. So you know you're playing. You know, game's over nine thirty, ten o'clock. You know, by the time you, you know, the adrenaline comes down and you, you know, you're ready to eat. You know, it's time to go to bed, get up in a couple hours, and catch the next plane out. You know, it was more difficult back then. Now, you know, they have catered food on the planes for you when you're ready. You know, when you're done. And, uh, you know the plane leaves when you, you know when the team's set to go. So you know you can play tonight, then jump on the plane and be home in a few hours, or to the next city, get in, get a decent night's sleep, and be ready to go the next day. You know, big difference. Now, do you think that? And I think I probably know what you're going to say to this, but do you think that? If you came out, let's say for some reason when you were a freshman and you played and you tried to play in the NBA after your freshman year, do you think your experience in the NBA would have gone completely different? Yeah, I would have made the team. You know, I know that for a fact. After my freshman year in college, I know there's no way that I would have made any team uh, in the NBA. Not a chance. 
So you're no, saying so? I was ready mentally, physically, uh, and my game wasn't nowhere near ready to play. So yeah, I would not have made anything. Now, when you were in the NBA, what was your welcome to the NBA moment? When you were like, "Whoa, I'm in the NBA." How was it when when you got drafted? Because you know you, you finally get drafted. That's sort of like not the validation, but you know for all the hard work you put in in high school and college, and you're like, I'm here. And it's like I'm the NBA. What was that like when you were like, I got drafted? Uh, you know, I mean, once again, it, it, it was a great moment, but it was a little disappointing because I was had been told I was going to go some other places higher up, you know, in the draft in the first round. Um, and knowing that, uh, you know, once I got drafted for, by Utah and the troubles that my agent had had with it before, you know, it was going to be an issue. But it was still a great feeling. I mean, you know, but I was still would have loved to go in the first round. So, so a lot, lots of times in sports, and they, they, this is more happens to the NFL, I think, but you hear the story where, you know, Aaron Rodgers and his family, you know, he's supposed to be a top five pick and he gets 25th and his, him and his family, they're just, you know, sitting in the green room and everybody else is getting called and hugging their families and he, him and his family are just still sitting in the green room. Well, no, we were, um, you know, we didn't have that. We were all on the, on the, on the uh, you know, in the, in the place that felt formed at Madison Square Garden. We were all sitting in there, everyone that, you know, there wasn't like a room where you wait get called out, you were already in the audience with your family or whoever came with you. Now, where would you rank the SEC, and now, in terms of basketball? Because lots of times when people think the SEC, they think of football, but where do you think the SEC stacks up in basketball? Well, if you want to judge by the invitees to the NCAA term, you would have to say second behind the ACC. I believe the ACC had nine teams and the SEC had eight or eight and seven, you know, we were one behind. So that says a lot, I believe, for 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 for, for each for those first two leagues. You, when you were at Tennessee, uh, Pat Summit was coaching the women's team. Did did you ever have any interaction with Pat Summit? Oh, all the time. All the time, knew her very well. Loved her to death. Great woman. What was she like? Great woman. Just stern, fair, uh, honest, hard worker. All the girls graduated. You know, I mean, she made sure of that. You know, so, so yeah, she was one one hell of a woman. Is there any interaction that you ever had with her that you're like, wow, like you know, she's one hell of a woman? Like, just, just watch it. Just watch them practice. Watch their game. They would do the same. Um, Tennessee's women's coach now, Holly Warlick, who's one of her players, and uh, you know, you just watch it. You just watch. She was an, an intense woman intense woman you know she, and those girls worked they worked hard and it showed and it showed not only showed in their character you know they were just all confident women you know on and off the court you know did a great job and, and, and intelligent because you better go to class playing for coach something you couldn't ditch class <laughs> I assume so somebody 
<laughs> Some people must have got the short end of the stick then when they didn't go to class. <laughs> So when you, yeah. so, so when you played in Europe, what was that experience like? Because you know you talk about you, you go from Long Island, New York, to Tennessee. Then you go even farther. You're going from Tennessee in the United States to Europe, a completely different country, society, just just a completely different people. How was that experience like? Uh, excuse me. Uh, different. You know, I didn't know what Spain was. Didn't speak any Spanish. Uh, I knew what Amigo was because I used to watch Speedy Gonzalez cartoons and I knew what uh, No Moss meant because I had heard Roberto Duran say that in his fight against Sugar Ray but that's all I knew but then again I mean I, I've always been you know easy to adapt to different places and um, you know once I got past the not understanding even if I didn't speak it although I started to speak it after about six months I um I I had I enjoyed myself, loved it. Great country, great people, great food, beautiful scenery. You know, got a chance to do the whole country. You know, I was over there 16 years, so you know, end up um, doing um, a Super Bowl on TV, did NBA game, did a baseball game, did a game show on TV, did a lot of radio. So yeah, it's like second home. Yeah. Now a lot of the time, I, I feel like when people, just in sports in general, they think. If you don't play like in the in the NBA, you know you're not good. But I don't think people realize that you know, even let's say like like you, you know, you didn't have a long NBA career it was short. But you know, you play 10, 15 years, and you know, professional basketball in another place, and you you could go ahead. I'm sorry. You you could probably beat most people. Let's say when you were in your prime, you'd beat mostly everybody in the world at basketball, right? Because you were really really good. How? It's not about that so much. You know what I mean? It's about how well you fit into a team. You know, you're not really, you know, you go out there and beat this guy, that guy. Um, but, but I, you know, like I said, back in the day, I mean, you had, you know, you had Arvidas Sabonis. You knew you had Fernando Martin. You had Drazen Petrovic before, he, you know, the last two guys passed away. You had really, really, really good talent, uh, you know, overseas. So, so. You know, it's and, and, and people have to understand that you if you're a basketball player and your in your career, um, you gave everything you could and your career ends after high school, um, well you know, your career was a success success. You gave it everything you had, and that's as far as you got, well then you had a successful career. I mean, I don't you know, think it means that a guy played one year or, or, or twenty one years in a certain place whether his, you know, career was good or not. Um, especially if they gave everything and tried everything they could to, to, to keep doing it, to stay to stay with it, and it couldn't. So you know, one years, ten years, uh, I don't think that that really matters. You know, and, and people, you know, other people uh, judging on you know the economic factor, and that's not it either. You know, there are great players that made millions of dollars that you know, unfortunately for whatever reason, you know, don't have it. So, so you know, there's so many ways to measure success. I just think that if you got as far as you got, could go, given everything you had, well, then you was a success in your sport. You know, and you're six seven, right? Six seven ish. Yes. Playing power forward, you know, probably a little bit undersized. And now in the NBA, you see lots of you see six six guys playing power for like Draymond Green. How tall is Draymond Green? Six seven ish. They made it. Same, yeah. Like, well, like we spoke about, you know, 
Oklahoma Bulls, games change. It. Those games change. You know now. You, but then again, on the other hand, you have guards six foot seven. You know Ben Simmons is six nine. You know so so yeah, the games change. It's it's a weird mix. You know it's funny. You, you get bigger in one position. That's both usually you know you know earlier on with the small position and the big position you get smaller. You know it's funny. But you know that's sports though. That's a good thing about it. Everybody gets a shot. Now, were you a three-point shooter? No, we didn't have it in high school nor college. And um, the system we ran in Utah was mostly, you know, a lot down low. Not not much of a three-point. I think I might have. I think I was over two, over three in in my little, you know, my short career. So so now when you see bigs, you know, stretching the floor, you know, to create space, and back in the day that just didn't happen. Could you just like, could you imagine just you know just sitting out the three point line and you know shooting threes? No, I mean, no, I couldn't imagine. You know, guys like you know Kareem or you know Artis Gilmore, Bob Lanier, those guys, you know, pulling up, you know, from outside the arc. You know, I I I just couldn't see it. You know, but then again, you could just. Look at those guys. You know, they were typical old school back to the basketball players. You know, and um, but like I say, everything you know, you know, evolutionizes. I mean, you know, look at baseball. You know, these guys. You know, you know, the Yankees got five, six, eight guys that all throw ninety-eight or above. You know, I mean, you know, it's just it's just different times. You know, look NFL. You got guys three hundred thirty pounds running four nine forties. Who would ever thought of that back in the day? You mentioned how much of a, just you. You said you couldn't. You as a freshman could not make an NBA team. And you said when you you were in high school, the difference between high school and college was so extraordinary. So, just can you just put into words how like how much of a talent than a guy like a LeBron James is? Because I remember when he was in high school, when he was like sixteen. People were saying that he could play in the NBA, and he came out when he was eighteen and averaged twenty five and five. I mean, yeah, though, I mean, you know, those guys are few and far between. You know, you, you just don't see them. And, and um, uh, this other kid here, uh, you know, now you can't come out of high school. Zion Williams, I believe his name is. I mean, that kid's amazing. And he's got an NBA body, you know, an NBA talent right now. But, you know, you don't see a lot of them. Like I say, you know, LeBron came out, what, 15 years ago? 12 years ago, whatever, whatever it is. You know, and, and look how long it's taken for somebody like him. You know, and people compare. And this kid is, is probably better shooter than LeBron or Ben Simmons. You know, so it, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy to see, to see guys like that. Now, what, what do you think of the, of the G League? Because now the NBA, that you know, sort of, you know, trying to really develop sort of like a minor league system in the G League. How do you think that is for just you know player development for guys that you know don't make the NBA and they can be you know be sort of stashed a little bit and learn and develop? Uh, I mean, you know, look at Trey Burke for example with the Knicks. You know, look what he's been able to do out of the G League. You know, I think there's a couple of guys, doctors, you know, even asked to go down there so they could work on their game. So when they came up. Know, they, they would be able to make a contribution. So, you know, I think it's better than what the CBA was when I was playing. Um, it seems to be more organized, better travel, uh, better arenas, you know, way, way more talent. You know, so it's just a good thing. It's a good thing. Go go there. You know, rather than, you know, these, you know, these guys, you have to understand these proactive to pride, proud people, you know. You know, they don't like sitting in the bench, especially, you know, you're the man in college. They want to play. 
and you know, rather than sit the bench, especially if they've already signed the NBA contract, you know, they'll go down to the D League, work on their game a little bit. Every now and then get called up, you know, to the big team and come in and, you know, show what you can do. Who's the most talented player you've ever coached, played with, or, or seen up up close? Or played oh, against? Michael Jordan, by far. Michael Jordan? Oh, yeah. You know, 19 his rookie year, by far. He just seems going to be an unbelievable talent. You know, you can just tell. He had, he had all the all the tools. He wasn't a good jump shooter, but he had the work ethic that you knew he was going to become one. You know, but, yeah, by, by far. So do you think Michael Jordan's better than LeBron James? I think that Michael Jordan's the best player ever played. I do. You know, and, and when Michael Jordan came out in 84, you know, the, the, the league is soft now. You know, flagrant here, flagrant there. You know, let them play like they did back in the day. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see guys dunking and flexing their muscles. You wouldn't see that. You know, you, you know, you would you wouldn't. You know, you go against the bad boys, Rick Mahorn, Bill Bill Lambert, dunk on them, flex them, flex your muscle. Believe me, you wouldn't finish the game. <laughs> you know, so, so, but I mean, for me, by by far, you know, LeBron can break the records that he wants, and and you know, you know, but Michael Jordan had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. You know, you can talk about Dennis Rodman. Dennis didn't score. You know, we had the grand guy, but you know what I mean? I mean, come on, these guys, you know, LeBron, Wayne Wade, and, and Bosch, Chris Bosch. And then you got these other guys, you know, such a difference, such a difference. And MJ 6 Are you trying to say that Charles Oakley would be the toughest guy in the NBA right now? Oh, it wouldn't be, oh, it wouldn't be close. <laughs> I love Oak. Yeah, I heard Oak would come to see you after the game. <laughs> he might. You know, he might. So, especially this happened more last year, but lots of people they were talking about how you know NBA players need you need more rest because LeBron was sort of a catalyst a little bit because you know he was sitting out a lot of games last year, and you mentioned the fact that. You know, players now in the NBA, you know, they have the good life because when you played, you know, you weren't flying commercial. So how much do you think it is that, you know, they do need to rest or in, or they just need to go out and play? You know, they've been playing 82 games, you know, for a long, long time. And and like I said, you know, those guys you know, getting up 4 in the morning and catch playing. So, I, I, you know, I don't feel sorry for them. You know, you get guys up there making ten, you got ten-year contracts, making two hundred forty million dollars. I do not feel sorry for them. Get to go out there and play. You know, do they need? Yes, it's tough. It is. It's tough. It's tough. But you have, you know, you have four or five months to rest. <laughs> you know, so I, hey, I, I don't feel sorry for. Them. And that's all. I want to thank you, Howard, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Shout out, man, Willie Jones. 
Willie Hunt Jones, Vanderbilt. We used to battle back in the day. Buffalo man. Played for the Lakers. Yeah, yeah, he knows your dad. Yeah, he. Willie, I said, Willie, shout out to you, brother. You listen. Now, coming up next on Barbershop Sports Talk, we're going to be entering our LNM Radio Network segment of the show. I'm going to play the full version of Eric Seminar's song that he did for me. Coming up next on Barbershop Sports Talk.